Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We can turn toward our cravings. We can turn toward all of our emotions instead of resisting them or running away from them. And not only do we learn that they go away on their own, but we learn that we can coexist. We can be with these. You know, the less we resist them, the more we can be okay with any strong emotion, which helps us really be with whatever, you know, whatever part of humanity we are in that moment. You're listening to Dr. Jed Brewer on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We really value our continuing education here at Psychologists Off the Clock, and we know that you value yours too. That's why we're thrilled to bring you our partnership with Praxis Continuing Education and Training. Praxis aspires to set a new standard in evidence-based professional development for behavioral health professionals. They offer both live and online workshops conducted by top-class peer-reviewed trainers in contemporary behavioral therapies, including Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, or ACT, Compassion-Focused Therapy, Radically Open Dialectical Behavior Therapy, and others. Praxis is the premier ACT training facilitator in the nation, with reoccurring workshops from ACT co-founders Steve Hayes and Kelly Wilson, as well as a number of other leaders in the ACT community. If you're interested in deepening your clinical skills, check out Praxis through our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and there you'll find a $25 off coupon code to get started on your next training today. And we'd also like to invite you to a virtual book club with our co-host, Jill Stoddard about her book, Be Mighty. That's happening in October. And if you go to our website and link to it through our sponsors page, you can get a 15% discount at checkout. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider making a values-based donation on Patreon. Even a small contribution helps us with some of our expenses. You could think of it as taking a co-host out for a cup of coffee. And you can link to Patreon on our website or just search for us on patreon.com. Hi, this is Diana here, and I'm excited to share an interview with Jed Brewer, who wrote the book, The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked and How We Can Break Bad Habits. And I have Debbie here, who's going to spill the beans on some of her bad habits, because Jed Brewer gives us a lot of tips and tools of how to do it differently. But maybe you could start, Debbie. What's, What's a bad habit you've been stuck in recently? Well, first of all, don't we all have a few, right? I mean, I I think the the question is like, which one should I talk about? Because I think, you know, it's like we get in these automatic things and they're not always, they're not always bad, but they're not always helpful, right? So I think one I was just paying attention to lately, I love to, you know, at the end of the day, cook dinner and pour a glass of wine, you know, white wine in the summer, 
red wine in the winter. It just helps me relax and cook and I enjoy it. But I think that there are times when it does become a habit, right? So I might have a reason not to drink a glass of wine, like A, just so I'm not drinking all the time (laughs) automatically, but then also because, you know, I might have some work I want to get done later or something like that. So I want to kind of stay clear headed. Um, But there's a lot of times when I start chopping an onion and I just want to automatically, you know, reach for a wine glass. And so that's definitely one where it can become a bad habit. Not a bad habit. It can become a habit. How about you, Diana? Yeah. So Debbie and I were just chatting and I said, there's so many that I can't share on the air. And she said, share one that you (laughs) share one that you wouldn't share, but uh, give us a juicy one. Give us something juicy. Yeah, a lot have been rearing up in the pandemic more than more than usual. But I think for me, what I've been noticing more and more is just a lot of checking of my phone, sort of incessant phone checking at unhelpful times. As as you're talking about checking your phone is, is not bad, but it's when I'm doing it when I'm with my kids or we're in the car and about to go somewhere. And what I find is that the results, so habits occur in this sequence of there's a trigger, there's a behavior, and then there's the results. And the results of me doing that are actually quite unhelpful in the long term, because I end up either forgetting that I've checked that email, and then not replying to someone or respond in the moment, in this haphazard sort of jumbled way that wouldn't be as effective as I've actually sat down and checked all my email at once. Not that you've ever received any of them. Maybe one or two, one or two jumbled emails, emails on the go. Emails on the go. There's been a lot written on this pattern of basic behavioral principles of trigger behavior reward. Charles Duhigg, who wrote about the power of habits. James Clear wrote a great book called Atomic Habits that's really accessible. Where Jed Brewer is really helpful is bringing curiosity to this habit loop process. I've gotten more interested recently in my own life and in my practice, looking at how to change that habit loop once you've gotten aware of it into more of a values-based one. And when you insert a values-based behavior to the behavior part of the habit loop, you end up getting an intrinsically positive reward. It actually feels really good to act on your values, and it can totally shape the course of your habit. So creating a new loop, a values-based one, can be quite helpful. And I've actually written about that and created a handout for you all. If you go to drdianahill.com, you'll be able to find a writing exercise where you can shift your habit loop into a values-based one. I think that's really important. You know, we were talking earlier about are habits bad necessarily or not? And just this very morning, I had a client who was talking about a habit and said to me, is that normal? And I would res- bond by saying it it doesn't matter if it's normal or not what's normal first of all but also the question isn't is this normal i think the question is is this working out in your life or not and that's where values comes in and so i think that's the question right is how's this working out in your life is this bringing you closer to the life you want and i think sometimes even a habit that's maybe neutral or a little bit on the side of taking us away from our values might not be that big of a deal, but we can get into a real shame spiral around it. A second habit loop, right? Because judging our habits can lead to that feeling of guilt and shame, as opposed to what you're talking about, just looking at our habits for what they are. Most of the cycle of a habit is unconscious. You're not really making the decision. You don't really realize it until halfway through. And to be able to make the the wise decision in the moment is what matters. I know for me that the second habit loop of guilt 
is uh, and going into rumination, it's really problematic and causes a lot more suffering than the initial habit that I was engaging in in the first place. If I go into guilt, I miss the big picture of actually how to help myself out for the next time and not engage in that behavior. Whatever your habits happen to be, and however they're showing up in your life, I think there's a lot to be learned from this episode with Judd Brewer. We also encourage you to check out his apps. He has three apps that are really helpful in shifting your habits. One is for anxiety, another one is for cigarette use, and the third is for eating. And he's an affiliate with Psychologist Off the Clock. So he's offering our listeners 20% off his programs. Go to our sponsorship page to get the Off the Clock coupon code to get that 20% discount. So check it out. Hope you like this episode and let us know what you think. Write a review. Dr. Jed Brewer is the Director of Research and Innovation at the Mindfulness Center and Associate Professor in Psychiatry at the School of Medicine at Brown University, as well as the Executive Medical Director of Behavioral Health at ShareCare, and he's also a research affiliate at MIT. As an addiction psychiatrist and internationally known expert in mindfulness training for addictions, Dr. Brewer has developed and tested novel mindfulness programs for habit change, including both in-person and app-based treatments for smoking, emotional eating, and anxiety. And we're going to talk about some of those today, like the Eat Right Now, Unwinding Anxiety, and Craving to Quit programs. So welcome, Dr. Brewer, to the show. It's a real delight to have you on. I've been uh, reading about you and listening to your voice, read me your book over um, the last couple weeks. And it's a real treat because you do such a beautiful job of integrating contemplative practice with neuroscience. So thank you. Well, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation. It might be helpful for us just to land in the here and now. And I was listening to an interview, I think it was back in April, and you were talking about just the strategies to get through this crisis and how to ground ourselves. And now here we are, uh, starting out in fall, and we're in a really different place even than we were back in April. This has turned from uh, crisis management to chronic anxiety and stress. You take a unique perspective on that and how we can address uh, anxiety and stress. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'd be happy to. And I think it comes from a combination probably of my, uh, my addiction psychiatry practice in my own personal mindfulness practice, which has been really informative and also some of the neuroscience work that my lab does. So I guess starting with the latter, you know, it's been, it's been really interesting to look at the actual mechanisms that form habits. And I think that in particular, it got really fascinating around how anxiety can be perpetuated as a habit. One way I think about this, uh, it's, you know, from the scientific standpoint is that we've, we've got this survival brain that's there to help us survive. Right. And, it actually learns in a very simple way um, through reinforcement learning. You know, it only has three core elements of trigger behavior and a reward. So if you think about it from a pragmatic standpoint, you know, our ancient ancestors back on the savannah were, you know, they're foraging for food and trying to remember where food is. So you find a food source, uh, that's the trigger. The behavior is you eat the food. And then the reward from a neuroscientific standpoint is that your stomach sends this dopamine signal to your brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So that was actually set up to help us survive. This is old survival brain. Yet in modern day, you know, most of us have refrigerators. <laughs> so, so we don't need to remember, you know, we, we know where the kitchen is. Yet these mechanisms are still at play. On top of this, 
has, you know, more recently has evolved this neocortex, literally the new brain, which is there to help us think and plan. And that combination of the two is not necessarily helping us out right now, you know, especially in, in this age of you know, really chronic anxiety. And I think it actually points to the core mechanisms of, of why anxiety is actually increasing right now, because this thinking and planning brain actually needs information. So the way it works uh, in a nutshell is that it takes previous uh, scenarios and it takes uh, previous behavior, right? And it says, okay, what, what happened back then? And then it simulates the future based on what we've done in the past, right? So this is where, you know, that saying, what's the best predictor of future behavior? Past behavior, right? <laughs> so, so that's how our, our thinking and planning brains work. The problem is that there's a huge amount of uncertainty right now, right? So if you think of it uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't know how contagious or dangerous this, uh, this virus was. So everybody was taking all these precautions, you know, like not touching mail, for example, because they didn't know, you know, if this virus could last on mail, because we just didn't know a lot of uncertainty there, a lot of anxiety there, a lot of fear that was, you know, that was justified, because fear is actually what helps us survive. We learn, oh, if that's dangerous, don't go there. Yet the uncertainty has persisted, but it's just shifted in terms of you know, when's there going to be a vaccine? How long is this thing going to last? Can, you know, are my kids safe to go back to school? All this stuff. And that, that uncertainty doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon, even though we're starting to learn how to manage, uh, you know, the, the severe cases, for example, steroids are showing to be you know, very helpful for prevent or for reducing mortality, things like that. So we're getting mortality rates down in the hospitals, yet for the majority of the population that's not sick, there's all this uncertainty. So you can think of it this way. Fear, you know, old survival brain helps us learn, you know, like avoid danger. But fear plus uncertainty leads to anxiety. And we don't see that ending anytime soon. You know, I, I heard a, a talk by Joseph Ledoux, who actually talks a lot about how this goes back to even just the protozoa, you mm. know, avoids toxins and moves towards nutrients. But mm. we have this unique thing about, the, about humans, which is our capacity, as you said, to simulate. So yes, we have the immediate response of, I got to keep my family safe, but then we can simulate in the conversation I'm having with my kids yesterday, we were at the beach. When are we going to go to the beach and not have a police car there and uh, everyone's masks on and have it be such an effort to just go do this thing that was a daily activity and a stress reliever. So even the things that we would be turning to, to relieve stress or help us with anxiety aren't working in the same way that they used to. Yeah. And another way to, to just add to what you're saying is you know, our thinking and planning brains don't stop. Right. <laughs> and so they go into these what if scenarios, you know, like what if this, what if that, what if this, what if that? And there's a there's a fair amount of research dating back to the 1980s. Uh, T.D. Borkovec at Penn State actually showed that anxiety uh, can get perpetuated in these same, you know, negatively reinforced habit patterns the same way that single cell organisms avoid danger. The way he pointed this out was that a negative emotion, let's say fear, that's the trigger, triggers a mental behavior of worry. A lot of people don't think of behavior as being mental, but in fact, we can have plenty of mental behavior. And that worry, even though it's not actually doing anything, 
it feels like it's doing something because we feel like we're in control. We're worrying, you know, at least I'm worrying about this, even if my worrying isn't going to help it. The problem is that that worry feeds back and then perpetuates cycle of anxiety, cycles of anxiety. So we just start spinning, you know, more and more and more and tighten down into these tiny little balls of anxiety. So worry has this sort of subtle reinforcement quality to it that even you're talking about that trigger behavior reward there's this sort of false reinforcement to worry but it doesn't it doesn't work it actually doesn't solve worrying doesn't solve any problems there's this other component that i want to dive into a bit which is the self-referential nature of all of it. And some of the the brain areas that are involved in anxiety that also get involved in that sense of me, as opposed to the sense of we. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. My lab serendipitously fell on to some of these brain networks through studying experienced meditators. So I was curious, you know, this was about 10 years ago now. I was curious how experienced meditators brain brain activity was different than novices or people that hadn't meditated. So we did a study where we compared brain activity of a novice versus experienced meditators. And we found, you know, the, the short summary of it is that there's this network of brain regions uh, called the default mode network. And it's called the default mode network because it's what we default to when we're not doing anything in particular. And what we tend to do when we're not doing anything in particular is think about ourselves, <laughs> you know, like we regret things that we've done in the past. We worry about things in the future. So in particular, uh, cravings, you know, all sorts of drug cravings, chocolate cravings, gambling cravings, those activate this default mode network and rumination. So with depression, when we're ruminating about things, you know, that we've done in the past, that also activates this network. Uh, when we are perseverating, which is basically just rumination about the future, you know, when we're worrying, that also activates uh, this network. And lo and behold, we found that experienced meditators are deactivating this network. Uh, and when we when we had that first study published, we were, you know, we weren't quite sure if that was accurate or not. So we followed it up. First, we did a replication study with a larger sample, and it, and it replicated it. But we also started using this uh, technique called real-time neurofeedback, where we could show people feedback from their own brains in real time. And that's really the only way to bridge this gap between what's described as subjective or first-person science and third-person, so objective science. So we, we needed to line up people's direct subjective experience with their brain activity. And in, in several studies that we published, we found that those two lined up pretty nicely. We even had Anderson Cooper from 60 Minutes come in and try it out on camera. So anybody that's interested, they can just Google, you know, Anderson Cooper, I think meditation, 60 Minutes, you know, brewer or something like that. And they can see, you know, we, we asked him to think of a time when he was anxious. Uh, his posterior cingulate cortex, this hub of the default mode network, shot off. It literally went off the charts above what we could record. <laughs> um, and you can see that on the on the screen. And then we asked him to meditate. So he'd been practicing meditation for about a month at that point. And he was just paying attention to his breath. And you could watch that brain activity just drop significantly. So it seems that these uh, self-referential brain networks are activated, you know, when we're caught up in things, when we get caught up in anxiety, when we get caught up in, in a craving, but they also deactivate uh, when, we, when we practice mindfulness and meditation. 
And one of the things that we got even, you know, dove into even more specifically was what is it about the meditation or the mindfulness that is decreasing this brain activity? So we did a bunch of, you know, a bunch of experiments and looked at subjective experience. And we found that it was literally this feeling of, of getting caught up where people are, you know, when they're working hard, you know, when they're trying to meditate, you know, they're getting caught up in that, that effort that was activating the posterior cingulate cortex. Um, when they were caught up in distraction, it was activating it, just like other studies had found. And when they were letting go, when they were simply resting in awareness or getting curious about their experience, that's when the posterior cingulate cortex activity decreased. Yeah. So it was really interesting. And this actually informed a lot of the work that we're doing now, which was you know, to really zoom in on this, this experience of getting caught up, right? And in fact, you know, we get caught up in anxiety. People know what it feels like when they're caught up in that anxiety. It feels like this contracted, closed down quality of experience. And when they let go, you know, simply by bringing curiosity to that moment, that helps them kind of unwind a little bit, let go. Um, and that, that experience starts to expand a little bit. So we can even simplify this and pragmatically, you know, help people start to pay attention to their own direct experience without these very expensive tools by noticing that, that closed down quality of experience versus the opened up, um, quality of experience. Does that make sense? Yeah. I love that you use the word curiosity because in, I'm a acceptance and commitment therapy practitioner. And when you get trained up and act, you get trained. Um, one of the things that Stephen Hayes says is that instead of using the word acceptance with folks, use the word curiosity and you'll get a lot further. <laughs> because when you say something like, well, maybe we should accept, you know, how the pandemic is impacting you right now. People are like, accept, I'm unwilling to accept. But if you use curious about the possibility that there's some outgrowths of what's happening, there's some changes that maybe could be beneficial. It totally changes our relationship. And, and as you describe, we move from narrowed behavior and attention to more expansive behavior and attention. And that is key to get people moving and more flexible in their yeah, lives. I, I totally agree. And I, you know, maybe I should accept, I think, you know, it's, it's a great example of how we add, you know, you've probably heard this term, we should all over ourselves. Yeah. Right. So, you know, if our, our therapist says to us, oh, maybe you should accept this, then we think of, oh, that's one more thing that I can fail at. <laughs> and then we get more contracted as compared to, oh, let's explore this or play with, or, you know, get curious about what that, what that feels like. And in fact, you know, curiosity, well, so let's geek out a little bit if you don't mind. But, you know, if I had to pick one word uh, and lose every other word in my vocabulary, that one word would be curiosity. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a perfect mantra. And if you look at it, there are actually two types of curiosity that can also inform experience as well. You're probably familiar with this, but in case others aren't. Uh, uh, there was this guy, Littman, uh, who back in 2005 published a paper describing what's called as deprivation and interest curiosity. And with deprivation curiosity, it, it tracks perfectly with uh, this idea of, of um, reward-based learning, right? Operant conditioning, where if there's, you know, we don't know the answer to something, then there, that, that triggers an urge to go look it up. Right, and this is where our our weapons of mass distraction, our phones, are are terrible at at actually perpetuating these cycles because we go look it up, and then we get that reward. 
how no matter how superficial or meaningless it is, we're like, oh, you know, that was that movie star. I couldn't think of that person's name, right? But that's that itch. And I think of this deprivation as destination, right? Once we get somewhere, once we get that answer where we feel better, but it actually perpetuates the cycle of, of doing that again. On the contrary, or contrasting to that, is interest curiosity. So where deprivation is destination-oriented, interest curiosity is about the journey. And so this is where we can get interested or curious about whatever's happening in our experience. And this is particularly relevant for things like cravings for food or getting caught up in worry habit loops, where we can encourage people to get interested and curious about what those sensations feel like in their bodies. And they can see, you know, oh, these are, these are sensations that are urging me to do this thing as compared to some moral imperative. I, I remember a patient coming into my office once where he's like, Doc, you know, if I don't smoke, I feel like my head's going to explode. And so we just kind of mapped it out actually on my whiteboard, you know, had him describe what his experience was, get curious about what his direct, you know, physical sensations were and how strong they were. And so they, the intensity increased and eventually it peaked and then it went back down. And he had this wide-eyed look. He's like, oh, and I said, well, what do you usually do at the top of that peak? He said, I usually smoke. Well, obviously he didn't smoke. I was at the VA hospital at the time. So we were on a smoke-free campus, right? He couldn't smoke in my office. So he realized, oh, these are physical sensations that I can get curious about. And if I don't act on them, they go away on their own. So he realized that these are, these are impermanent. These are, you know, these are not you know, things that I have to be personally attached to which then links that even back to basic Buddhist concepts where they talk about impermanence. They talk about taking things personally and things like that. And that curiosity can help reveal all of that simply by becoming curious about what's happening right now. I think curiosity can help us stay with it too, because there's a component of curiosity that's very much about the here and now, as opposed to that pre-decided what's going to happen next. So, the, you know, the concept of beginner's mind, of entering into the experience of the beginner's mind. It's interesting because I was thinking about my brother-in-law-to-be is a Segway designer. So he works with this robot. He works on the brains of the robot. And what he says is that when athletes get onto this thing, they try and make it balance. And because they try and force it, the robot's supposed to balance for you, but they can't let go of the fact that they have to actually let go in order for the robot to be balanced. But when children get on, they're so used to letting go that you just tell the child, oh, let go and the robot will do it for you. And they can step on and zoom off they go. So the better the athlete, the worse they do. And I think as we become more uh, experts in our lives or better at controlling things, the actually worse off we are when facing uncertainty because yes. there's so much that we can't control. And that's where really your offerings and mind trainings come in as an opportunity of what do we do when we can't, we can't control what's going to happen next. Absolutely. Well, what a great example of that, where it's, you know, the irony where we're, the more we force things, uh, the more <laughs> we're likely to bang our head against the wall. Yeah, the case for many of our experiences. I was actually, I was fascinated by the smoking study that where you talked about how cravings actually didn't decrease over the course of four weeks of your treatment, but that uh, people's relationship with the craving changed. And how different that is than trying to impose something like a gold standard CBT, where we expect the symptom, we want the craving to decrease, we want the thoughts to change. And sometimes that is not the case, but our behaviors can change even in the face of our, our emotions still being high. 
Right, right. And that highlights one of these other, you know, these little uh, sayings around, you know, what we resist persists. And so when my patients resist a craving, whether it's for food or for a cigarette, that that craving actually persists and it pushes back on them. Yet, if they can just learn to change their relationship to the craving and get curious, this is like Aikido, where you use the energy of the craving itself, instead of trying to push against it, you use it to work with it, you know, and so we can turn toward our cravings, we can turn toward all of our emotions instead of resisting them or running away from them. And not only do we learn that they go away on their own, but we learn that we can coexist, we can be with these, you know, the less we resist them, the more we can be okay with any strong emotions, which helps us really be with whatever, you know, whatever part of humanity we are in that moment. You know, there's this, there's this great um, simple equation that there's a meditation teacher, Shinzen Young, taught me, which is uh, suffering equals pain times resistance. So if you think of that suffering, um, the pain can be anything. It can be emotional pain. It can be physical pain. The more we resist that pain, right? So let's say it's a craving. The more we resist that craving, the more our suffering is going to go up. But the more we let go and get curious about that craving, the more that resistance goes down, the craving is still there, yet the suffering is not there. And so we can learn to be with that craving. And that's what our study showed was, you know, at four weeks, the cravings were just as strong. People learn to be with them, not resist them, so that they could actually cut down on their smoking. And this is where we got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment, right? So it was really working. When we looked three months later, in fact, that craving had died down on its own. And the way I think about this is the analogy of a fire, right? If craving is that fire and cigarettes are that fuel for the fire, if you stop adding fuel, the fire is not going to magically just go out in that moment it's going to die down over time. And the less fuel you add to it, the more quickly it dies off. And the expectation for us to think our way out of a craving when we're experiencing one, if, I mean, I think any, everyone has experienced some degree of craving or wanting or feeling overwhelmed. The expectation that we're going to think our way out of that in that moment is setting us up for failure, Right. And it's interesting because we're in fire country here in in Santa Barbara. And one of the things that we made as part of our our fire plan in our house, because we've had to evacuate many times, is that there's three things that we do if a fire happens. We grab the backpack that's under our bed that's pre-packed and we grab our dirty laundry bin. And then we uh, we grab any of my, my grandmother's paintings, right? And so the dirty laundry bin was a technique that someone told me because they said, you're not going to have the, the wits to figure out what you're going to want to wear. <laughs> but if you but if you take what you've worn for the week, you're probably going to be good, right? And so to prepare for my for basically my prefrontal cortex to go offline when there's I have to evacuate is a good thing. How do we do that? With something like we're, we're overwhelmed by stress or anxiety, we're having a panic moment, we're about to yell at our kids, right? These are all examples of our, our stress systems overtaking our prefrontal cortex. Yeah. So here it comes back to understanding how our minds work, right? And so if we know that the prefrontal cortex is the youngest and weakest part of the brain from an evolutionary perspective, this is why you know, cognitive therapies may not work as well as we all wish that they did, you know, because we can't, we can't think our way out of a craving, for example. 
Yeah. We can't think our way out of anxiety. Um, we know this, that because our prefrontal cortex is the first part of the brain that goes offline when we're stressed or when we're anxious, right? There's this, this saying halt, you know, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. That's when our prefrontal cortex or thinking part of the brain goes offline. So this is you know, analogous to the fire emergency, right? <laughs> when, we, when that halt acronym comes up or when we're anxious, that's when our prefrontal cortex is not working. And we're going to go back to our old survival brain. So the question is, how do we put out that fire, so to speak? And the way to do that is to help ground us in our direct experience. What's happening right now instead of getting caught up in worry or having our minds spiral out of control? So one, you know, a couple of things that I, I teach people to do, whether it's through our Unwinding Anxiety app or through my, in, even in my clinic, is to help the, you know, we've got a couple of things that we can ground ourselves in our direct experience right now. And one of my favorites is through our feet. You know, our feet tend to be an anxiety-free zone, right? So think of that as the, you know, the fire ring around, you know, it's, it's less, we're less likely to um, have anxiety in our feet, just like if you, you know, have a fire zone that where you've protected the, you know, from jumping or whatever, then you're, you're not going to have a fire there. And so I have people just simply get curious. This goes back to curiosity get curious about what their feet feel like in, in this moment. You know, it's like they could even wiggle their toes. You know, what, what's it feel like when I wiggle my toes and stop wiggling them? What's it feel like with the pressure of my feet on the floor or in my socks and shoes, if we're, you know, or whatever. And we can just ground ourselves in the immediate experience in the present moment with what's happening right now. Oh, what do my feet feel like? And we can even up that by asking, okay, which foot is warmer than the other foot right now. Hmm, which foot is warmer than the other foot? It doesn't matter what the answer is, but that actually taps into our natural capacity to be curious right in this moment. So that's one practice that people can do. Uh, another is, uh, and this is a great one that we can teach to our kids. I, I put out a short YouTube video on this. Um, if, if folks want this neuroscience behind it, we won't get into it right now. But this thing called five finger breathing, where as somebody breathes in, they can trace up the outside of their pinky. As they breathe out, they can trace down the inside and so on. They can trace their hand as they take five breaths. They can do trace it back to the thumb to pinky uh, to do 10 breaths. And that's a great way to help ground ourselves, not only in breathing, because sometimes it can be hard to ground yourself in your breath, but we're also doing this in a multi-sensorial way. So we're seeing our hands, we're feeling two different fingers, and we're feeling our breath at the same time. And what that does is it basically takes up all of our working memory. Think of it as the brain's you know, RAM, the random access memory. If you use all that space up, then those worry thoughts don't have space to be in there. So after you do five or 10 breaths, even if those worry thoughts come back on, your physiology is calmed down. And so those thoughts come back and, you're, and there's a mismatch emotionally, right? There's less uh, emotional charge to those thoughts. And then we can say, oh, those are, you know, those are just worry thoughts and we're less likely to get caught up in them again. So those are two practices that are very pragmatic. And um, we can teach, you know, five finger breathing is great to teach to your kids. And then, you know, bedtime, you do, you know, 10 breaths together or something like that. You can do it at, uh, at meal times, et cetera, et cetera. And a great thing to do is teach our kids to be our emergency go-to. So like, if we're all freaked out, we can say, hey, if I look freaked out, why don't you say, you know, hey, mom or dad, why don't you do five finger breathing with me? And then they can lead us through it. So they feel like they're in control. 
I love the feet, and there's so much um, in ancient practices about about feet and rooting, uh, even sitting and rooting, and a lot of the yogic practices. When I teach yoga, and I ever whenever I teach uh, tree pose, we always start with growing roots. So imagining that your feet are growing roots down to and anchoring themselves in the center of the earth. And just like trees have those deep roots that then you can be more flexible and move around. If your feet are rooted, it helps with that um, ability to respond to and adapt to the adversity around us. Um, fascinated that Johan Heimberg, who's at Stanford Center for Altruism and Compassion, teaches growing roots as part of the compassion exercises that he's using in schools or with all the populations they work with there. So I love finding a place where you feel safe or bringing curiosity to it. There's this other component that I was appreciative that you write about and that I think is missed a lot as mindfulness is brought into the West. So mindfulness is one aspect of sort of the Eightfold Path. There's seven other aspects of the Eightfold Path in Buddhism. And you talk a lot about actually generosity and kindness, and those is actually being a new reward pathway. So not only breaking up the reward pathway that we're in, but how can we shift to a different reward pathway that maybe is more linked to our values? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question because this actually gets back to some of the core neuroscientific principles about how we learn. Uh, I think of this as kind of a a three-step process. So, uh, and this is what I teach some of my patients is, you know, first they have to map out their habit loops, right? So we have to become aware of what's the trigger, what's the behavior, what's the result. But then step two, I have them ask themselves a question, which is what do I get from this? Okay. So from a Buddhist perspective, that question gets at the cause and effect relationship, right? They talk about cause and effect being really critical for basically everything, right? So what's the result of our behavior? And the, what do I get from this helps zoom in on, okay, what's the behavior that I just did? And what's the effect of that? From a neuroscientific standpoint, there's a part of the brain called the orbitofrontal cortex, which actually determines and stores reward value of you know different behaviors. So it sets up this whole hierarchy of goodness. Think of it that way. So uh, what would be a simple example? Broccoli, okay? So if we eat broccoli and uh, our brain's gonna lay down a certain reward value based on calories and whatnot, then we eat some milk chocolate, right? And so from a caloric standpoint, milk chocolate has, is more calorically dense and it's sweeter, right? So from a survival standpoint, our brain's gonna say, oh, chocolate higher than broccoli in the reward hierarchy, right? That's why we feed our, we don't feed our kids dessert and at the same time as dinner, because they're going to, they're going to go for the, they're going to go for the dessert anytime. So uh, another, you know, just adding to that for me, if I eat milk chocolate versus dark chocolate, well, dark chocolate, definitely. Right. So uh, and for me, I'm never going to slum it into the 60s, right? It's got to be at least 70%. Yeah, but job. there's a point where you get too high and then you lose that that sweet spot. It's like between yeah, yeah. 70, 80, 85. <laughs> Add in some sea salt, a little bit of cayenne. You can, you, know, you can nuance it a bunch. But our brain, this orbital frontal cortex is, is setting up this whole reward hierarchy. And so it's going to say, when given a choice, okay, if I get, get a choice between milk chocolate and, you know, 85% dark chocolate that's made by a certain brand, my brain's going to pick that 85% every time. So the way we can actually capitalize on that is, uh, is by bringing awareness in again. So uh, an example, let's go back to our smoking study, but this works also with eating, et cetera. 
when we did our first smoking study, when we randomized people to get mindfulness training, we, they didn't know they were going to get mindfulness training. And in the first night that of uh, the group that got randomized to mindfulness training, we said, go ahead and smoke. And they looked at us like, I thought this was a smoking cessation study. We said, no, no, pay attention as you smoke and see what happens. And people started realizing, you know, I remember one, uh, one woman, you know, she wrote down, you know, mindful smoking. So she was doing this mindful smoking exercise, smells like stinky cheese and tastes like chemicals. Yuck. So what that, what she was pointing out there was that when she paid attention, the reward value of the cigarette was not nearly as great as she remembered, right? So that reward value actually dropped. And there's a whole bunch of uh, you know, math behind this. There's a, a Rescorla and Wagner were these two scientists in the 70s to describe this whole reward value curve. And we can actually study this. My lab has studied this now. When we have people mindfully eat or mindfully smoke, Within 10 to 15 times of people using you know, these, these, this tool, we have built it right into the app, we can actually measure a drop in the reward value where their behavior will shift from overeating or eating junk food to not eating those things or not overeating. And it will also shift from smoking to not smoking. And what we see is that you know, mathematically, we can model out that change in reward value. So that orbital frontal cortex is kind of updating the reward value. So what, what's updating is how much lower the old behavior is. So let's go to your, your pointing out things like kindness and curiosity. Once we start to see that these old behaviors aren't as rewarding, this opens up a space to bring in new behaviors. And so we can then ask our brain, ask ourselves, pay attention. Well, what's it feel like when I'm kind to somebody? So let's compare kindness to meanness, right? So there might be some self-righteous quality at the, you know, when, um, you know, we, we yell at somebody for some reason, but if we really pay attention to all the results of that behavior, we can start to see, oh, I don't feel good. You know, it didn't improve my relationship with that person, whoever it was, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we, we see how this can be really problematic on social media because we don't actually see the negative effects often when we're just you know, having some Twitter fight with somebody because we're like mute and then we never see the person again, you know, after we, I told that person and you know, we feel, we feel self-righteous about it. But if we look at that, there's this underlying quality of restlessness um, and actually of contraction. So my lab has actually studied these emotional states and we found that uniformly across the board, people report that anger actually feels contracted, right? It's, it's a driven, contracted, restless quality to it. When you compare that to kindness, and we've actually directly compared the two, kindness not only feels open, but it feels more rewarding to people. And it may be as simple as looking at those closed versus open states. Those closed states actually feel less rewarding than the open states. And those open states tend to be curiosity, kindness, joy, connection, you know, all these things that are actually, you know, helping us coexist in a more harmonious way, but also in a way that's going to be more sustainable down the road, right? If we yell at somebody, we have to worry about if that person's going to come back and do something to us. If we're kind to somebody, what do we worry about? That they might come back and do something kind to us? <laughs> you know, great problem to have. I really appreciate how there's an overlap between your work and um, compassion-focused therapy and Paul Gilbert's work in terms of how he maps out these three emotion systems, the systems of threat and drive, which have that narrowing 
of attention and behavior, and then the compassion soothing system that when we are mindful, when we're in present, and when we're interconnected and feel compassionate towards other, there's an openness and expansiveness. And he often talks about the the man on the porch with his guns who is seeking safety, but does not feel safe, mm-hmm. right? Does not actually feel open because he's alert, ready to shoot anyone that's come in his way versus the man on the porch with his dog, right? And that's a different, that's a different state to be in and how we can use both mindfulness of the present moment in combination with compassion as well as sort of this more bigger picture perspective of interconnectedness, of not seeing ourselves as separate units, but rather that we are all interdependent. And man, are we learning that right now more than ever? What's happening in the brain there when we get into that state? We published a paper about five years ago on loving kindness in particular. So for those that aren't familiar with that, loving kindness is a, is a meditation practice of basically just opening our hearts, you know, and there are ways to formally help people systematically do this through phrases such as, you know, these are supportive phrases that help people open such as, you know, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be safe from harm, things like that. And we can even direct those toward ourselves when, when we need that uh, self-kindness as well. And what we found was that in contrast to, uh, Well, let's just say what we found was that the default mode network, which gets activated again when we're when we're worried, right? When we're you know when we're getting worried that might we might not be safe, for example, or uh, in fact this the default mode network gets activated um, with certain types of romantic love when somebody is very obsessed with their romantic partner. This is a, a study that was published, I think, in 2011. I wrote about it in my book. Um, where this group had found that uh, people who are in long-term relationships, you know, there was this passionate love scale and there's this subscale of obsessiveness. And the more obsessed somebody was with their partner, the more their posterior cingulate was activated. Because when you're obsessed, is it really about that relationship or your partner or is it about you, right? Oh, I'm obsessed. And that quality of, you know, contracted, I want, you know, I'm obsessed with my partner it, it correlates with these brain activation patterns. What we found with loving kindness, perhaps not surprising at this point, is that those same brain regions get really quiet because we're not worried about ourselves. And in fact, the joy that comes with being with, with kindness is just so much sweeter than you know than trying to hold on to the love or hold on to the relationship. Uh, that it's it's much more re- rewarding in itself. So we're not only seeing brain activation patterns getting quieter with loving kindness, but people are reporting that that loving kindness just feels more open. You know, I'll give a personal example. When I was in residency training, <laughs> I would ride my bicycle to the hospital because uh, I lived a couple of miles away. And uh, this was in New Haven, Connecticut. And the, um, sometimes the cars were not as excited about me being on the road as I was. And so I, you know, maybe get honked at or this or that. And, you know, sometimes you know, you're gr- grumpy or whatever, I would uh, give them a universal sign of displeasure or, you know, do something that was, that was provoked, provocative that wasn't that helpful. And I'd get to the hospital and I'd be all, you know, in, in a huff. And I was thinking, wow, this is not a great way to go and see patients. You know, I'm in a good mind state for this. So I started practicing loving kindness where whenever somebody honked at me, 
I would use that as a mindfulness bell to offer them a phrase of loving kindness. And then I would offer one to myself as well. You know, one for you, one for me. And I would get to the hospital and be like, people are like, wow, what are you on? You know, you're, you're, in a, you're a really good place. And then I realized I don't have to wait for cars to honk at me uh, to practice loving kindness. So like any car that went by, I would just offer, you know, a phrase of loving kindness. And what that, what I found was that it was so much more rewarding but, you know, for me to not be provoking cars and also, you know, just for me personally, it just felt so much better that, that I, you know, it's like, wow, how can I tap into this all the time? And, and it became much easier to, to be opening to this kindness, not only toward others, but also toward myself. Cause I realized that beating myself up really wasn't that helpful. It didn't feel good. I got into a worse place. And in fact, you know, whatever it was, I, I wasn't open to learning from whatever that situation was, which also, you know, you can think of this as, as uh, Carol Dweck's growth mindset. You know, when we're in fixed mindset, when we're all closed down, those are moments when we're judging ourselves or we're beating ourselves up. We can't actually learn from those situations. But if I do something, like if I make a quote unquote mistake and I, I'm like, oh, I made a mistake and I open to that, I'm actually in growth mindset so I can learn from it. Yeah, you know, it's sort of this interesting thing that there's an addictive quality to self-righteous rumination. And when I was reading that in your book, I was getting it. This this feeling of like scratching poison oak, it feels so good, but then it spreads all over your body. And that I think is seems to be exacerbated right now at a time when there's a lot of political division. We could just bump into anyone and get on our diatribe about how this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. And it feels kind of good itchiness, but then afterwards we feel worse, yeah. uh, as well as the way in which we're using our technology. And I'd like to talk a bit more about the way in which we're using our technology that is unhelpful. And I don't want to be to say we shouldn't be using technology, but ways in which you've designed technology actually to be helpful for us, that the very same material we can use in helpful or unhelpful ways. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. And I agree, you know, I challenge anyone, you know, these days to try to navigate uh, the city of Boston without a GPS. You know, it just doesn't it doesn't work. Especially as we've all become reliant on our technology, forgotten how to figure out your know, directions. So, if you think about this from a clinical perspective, my uh, my patients don't learn to smoke in my office. You know, they don't learn to get anxious in my office. They don't learn to overeat in my office. And so, I remember. You know, look at, looking out of my uh, my office window at the, I was at the VA hospital, we were on a smoke-free campus, and I'd see my patients, you know, it's like they have a cigarette in one hand uh, in the, out in the parking lot, and they have, what do they have in their other hand? You know, as Cornell West puts it, they, they, they're weapons of mass distraction, right? Their, their cell phones. So it's like, well, if people, you know, our brains are really set up to learn things in context. So can I actually help people learn things in context? At the time, Yale had patented some of my neuroscience work and you know, start up this startup company for us in an, in an incubator. And we hired a, um, a documentary. It was, it was a, a young woman. Uh, her name was Sochita Pov, who's right out of their school of management, who was a documentary filmmaker. And she said, Judd, why don't we use your evidence-based training and put this in an app? You know, this is back in 2012, you know, back when most people were never thinking about, you know, Digital therapeutics, which is a term that was only developed just a couple of years ago, you know, can you actually deliver treatment through an app? And one of my um, one of my career mentors, uh, Kathy Carroll at Yale, was just starting to 
uh, do studies in implementing cognitive uh, behavioral therapy online. So I was thinking, you know, online sounds good. Phones sound even better because everybody's got one in their pocket. So we said, okay, let's let's develop, you know, let's let's cut these evidence-based trainings and put them into apps and, and test these, you know, in, where they can get bite-sized training and get it right on, you know, where in context. They don't have to come to my office. They don't need childcare. There's no copay, you know, all this stuff. And so we started with a smoking app um, to see and uh, if that would work for smoking cessation. Uh, it's called Craving to Quit. I think you'd mentioned that earlier. And we actually, we did a, a study uh, where we looked uh, to see if we could actually change brain activity, you know, because I'm looking for mechanisms. I want to make sure this stuff works. So we basically could bring people in. This was in collaboration with Amy Janes at Harvard. She has this great paradigm where she puts people in an fMRI scanner, shows them pictures of cigarette smoking or neutral cues and can measure their, their default mode network brain activity. And then we can randomize them to get, you know, this mindfulness app or National Cancer Institute's app. And then a month later, we can scan their brain again. Long story short, we found that there was a direct correlation between the amount of posterior cingulate activity that was decreased uh, and the decrease in cigarette smoking. But that mm. was specific to the mindfulness group. The National wow. Cancer Institute's app did not show that correlation. Oh. We even found it. We, I know. I don't know what to say about that. Um, <laughs> We even found a dose-dependent relationship. So both groups completed about the same number of modules, yet with the mindfulness training group, it was the correlation was 0.49. It was almost 0.5, whereas the more modules they completed, the better they did. No correlation, again, with the NCI app. Not sure what to say about that. So here, you know, we're seeing direct uh, mechanism. So we then said, okay, you know, smoking, let's see if we can do this for eating. Same learning mechanisms. Long story short, a study led by Ashley Mason at UCSF 40% reduction in craving-related eating in people using our Eat Right Now app. Mindfulness training helped them work through craving, helped them drop their, you know, the reward value of eating all this stuff. 40% reduction, 35% reduction in eating uh, in response to uh, negative emotions, right? So it was actually tapping into that mechanism. Then we created this anxiety app called Unwinding Anxiety. First did a study with anxious physicians. Uh, long story short, we got a 57% reduction in GAD7 scores, these clinically validated anxiety scores. We replicated that in a randomized control trial uh, that was funded by the NIH, uh, where we got a 63% reduction in GAD7 scores in people with generalized anxiety disorder, right? These are the Olympians of worry. And we also found mechanistically that they increased their mindfulness, so their non, non-reactivity, the subscale of this five-facet mindfulness questionnaire, that increase mediated a reduction in worry. That reduction in worry mediated a reduction in anxiety. So we're, here we're seeing mechanistically that increases in this non-reactivity, which is what mindfulness trains people to do, reduces worry, which in turn reduces anxiety. Now, just to put this in context, uh, this was compared to treatment as usual. So the treatment as usual group, I think they dropped their uh, anxiety scores by about 15 or 16%. So that's, you know, respectable in a couple of months, but, you know, 63% versus 16%. Uh, there's a way to actually calculate uh, what's called a number needed to treat. You're probably familiar with this. Others might be as well. I think of this as, you know, how many lottery tickets do you need to play before you win? And so for the typical medication, uh, for anxiety, the number needed to treat is 5.15. So you have to treat just over five people before one person shows a significant reduction, reduces to, uh, you know, gets a remission basically in their anxiety. So 5.15, 
with this Unwinding Anxiety app, the number needed to treat was 1.6. So you only need to treat just over one and a half people before you know somebody showed a significant benefit. So here, you know, with these digital therapeutics, we're finding you know they're accessible. They're you can you can make them very affordable. Um, people can anybody that has a cell phone or a smartphone can have access to these, so that we can get this to people in geographically remote areas. We can reduce barriers, so this isn't just you know rich white people that can you know can afford to you know do some treatment like this. This is something that can be available to anyone. And we're here. We're seeing both mechanistically and empirically that these that these programs work. So we're really excited to see that you know we can actually help this whole field of digital therapeutics move forward through evidence based mindfulness training programs. But all of that goes back to mechanism. It goes back to really understanding how our minds work, and then learning how to work with our minds that way. I love that. You know, I was watching you as you were talking, and one of the things that I like to do when people are talking is see where they light up. And man, you let you lit up about that. You can tell that this is something that you're incredibly passionate about, and probably is pulling together a lot of um, your life's work and your values that are being lived out in this work. And I'm curious about that. Like, what is the meaning behind this work for you in a deeper way? Oh, what a great question. Well, as a clinician, and I'm sure you can relate to this, it's great to see when my patients are doing well, you know, and medications, you know, I'm a a psychiatrist, I prescribe medications. They just don't do a great job. I mean, for some people, and it probably depends on genetic polymorphisms, whatever, some people benefit from things like SSRIs for anxiety, but the majority of people, they really need to learn how their minds work. And so it's really gratifying to see patients do well. But the other thing, even more personally is, you know, as as a physician, I took this, this oath first, do no harm Mindfulness training is much less likely to cause harm for people, you know, in terms of side effects and things like that. There's no, it's not zero risk. And certainly for some populations, especially folks with a trauma history, et cetera, they need to work with a, you know, skilled therapist that, that has uh, training with that. That aside, this training is helping people live better lives. And as kind of like a, a side benefit as compared to a side effect, they're generalizing this to other aspects of their lives. So they are finding that when they are, you know, when they learn mindfulness, they're kinder to other people. And so we start to see this spreading effect where, you know, kindness is actually spreading in the world simply through somebody coming in, whether it's through an app or, you know, to my clinic or whatever, where people are learning to live not only, you know, more calm and peaceful lives, but more connected and kind lives where that kindness is spreading to others. And that's really, you know, what did Martin Luther King Jr. say in his, 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 his uh, letter from a Birmingham jail? He was talking about, you know, we will meet your hatred with kindness and we'll win a double victory. And he says, that kindness will be the salvation of our civilization. And that's, I think that's really what gets me up in the morning is that, you know, I personally have benefited so much from learning how my mind works, learning these, these mindfulness practices all the way back to the Buddhist psychology. But really, this is the only thing that makes sense to me, you know, is like to live my life this way to, you know, it, it's so gratifying to just be in service of others just through simply helping them understand how their minds work and then watching them blossom when they realize, Oh, 
this is, I can actually live a better life simply through bringing awareness and letting my brain take care of the rest because kindness feels better. You know, generosity feels better. There was something, uh, there was a, a sutta even from the Pali Canon where the Buddha talked about, you know, if people only knew uh, what generosity feels like, they wouldn't go a single meal without sharing it with another. You know, like that's how powerful this is. I'd rather have a potluck than a catered meal any day. I think what I heard or what I was spotting in you was both this really true desire to help people and spread that in a, in a broad way, as well as that value of curiosity that you were talking about, that you're trying to foster in others, that it really seems that that's showing up in your, in your professional work as a scientist, as really true open-minded curiosity of where is this going to take us, as opposed to that predetermined practice that I think that sometimes science gets uh, caught up in. I don't think anybody has ever asked me that before. It was, so it's, it's really nice to get to reflect back on why I do this work. So thank you. You can just tell where people get excited. Like their pace starts to increase and you can feel like behind their eyes, you're having this imagery happening, this mental simulation of the process of create. I could, I could feel it. I mean, I could feel it energetically with you. And I imagine that's been the case for you across your career. I mean, I know that you sort of get into whatever you're into and then you're on to the next thing that you're into. It just keeps on developing, but I'm kind of fascinated by, by you as a person. How did you do medical school and meditate two hours a day? That's interesting. Yeah. Well, medical school is really where I started getting into it. Um, I think it was when I was in residency when I started doing, you know, ramping up the practice uh, or maybe right after residency. Oh yeah. I was started doing two hours straight as a way uh, during my smoking study. And that was right after residency. (laughs) But I have to say, you know, I, I can be so much, I'm so much more efficient uh, and focused with this practice, I can't imagine what I would be like if I didn't, you know, if I hadn't been introduced to mindfulness early on. So yeah, it's your roots. I mean, I think that's what it, what it becomes. I think especially for people right now that have had a mindfulness practice or a spiritual practice or whatever their deal is, maybe even an exercise practice, they're like regular walkers, Mm -hmm. having that as something to root back into is incredibly helpful. And when, when you're going through stressful stuff, you're, you went through MD PhD program, it's a different kind of stress, but it's super high stress environment. Having that as a foundation, I think makes complete sense. But maybe you couldn't have done it if you didn't have that, or maybe you would have needed like a serious addiction to get through it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the other course that people take. Yeah, that's true. I think about as you're, as you're talking, how in the world do you do all that and not get caught up in the the cycle of ambition and self-promotion. And there's so much of, of you that's out there right now. Also so much of your heart that's behind this. How do you practice that in your daily life? <laughs> <laughs> like not get hooked by your phone pictures of you, basically. Yeah. Well, it comes back to awareness and curiosity. Those two sides of the mindfulness coin. When I pay attention and I see what it feels like to get caught up in self-promotional stuff, it just, it just doesn't feel very good. You know, I can see from your facial expression, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like, oh, I guess I should post this on Twitter because I'm supposed to, but it's like not because I'm excited. To, you know, it's like, ugh. 
I'm happy to post, like if I read something on Twitter, that's especially if it's about kindness or something, it's like, I'm happy to repost that or retweet yeah. or whatever it's called. Cause it just feels good to spread that. But it's like, when I have to promote myself, it just, ugh. and honestly, it's like, you know, if it's going to get out there, it's going to get out there. And me pushing it just doesn't feel authentic and doesn't feel rewarding enough that I'm going to do it. So it's like, I'm going to let it, I'll just put it out there, see what happens. And I just can't actually force myself to do it anymore because it just turns my stomach. It just, it's just not worth it. Yeah. <laughs> I'd rather live a life of obscurity, yeah. um, you know, and just simply there's plenty to be curious about. You know, so I can I can be curious in obscurity and not, you know, not try to get my theories or my name out there and be much happier than spending my entire life just trying to get people to listen to what I have to say. Boy, talk about not not being rewarding. You know, that's what I love about this stuff is I don't have to worry about there's no judge theory of anything. This is like. This is just basic stuff. It's freely available forever, information. You know? yeah. yeah. So, so I'm going to be like, oh, B.F. Skinner. Oh, the Buddha. Oh, you know, Eric Kandel. All these really smart people figured this stuff out and I'm just applying it and helping people live better lives through it. It doesn't have to have my name on it at all. And in fact, the more I spend time trying to get my name on something, the more energy I waste that I could be using helping people. It's so interesting. Natalie was helping us get on the call this morning and uh, I was talking to her about this heat wave we're having here in, in Santa Barbara. And last night we went to the beach, like at five o'clock, it was still 90 degrees. And I took my two, my, actually my partner had to drop me off because you can't park at the beaches <laughs> because of COVID. So he dropped me off and, you know, kind of threw us out there and we were swimming and there was this a man who was probably in his 70s swimming with his dog. And as I was watching him swim in the ocean at five o'clock with his dog, I was like, this is what life is about. And then I turned to my kids and I was watching them and I was like, wait a minute, this is what life is about, right? And then I had to go check my phone because partner was coming to pick us up and I don't want to get lost in the ocean. And, you know, he has to drive, he literally has to drive by and we have to jump in. And I go back to my phone and I open it up and I push the email button. I got an email. Here's, you know, Dr. Judd's bio, blah, 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 to read on the air. And then I'm like reading through the emails and all of a sudden I had lost it, right? I had lost it. And because, you, because of your work and because I've been listening to you and reading about you and, you know, this is also something I practice outside of the Judd Brewer preparation, I was able to put the phone down and go back. But I know that there's been a lot of times when I've been at that same beach and probably been on my phone for 50% of the time. And missing out on the man with the dog, or maybe my own experience that who knows when it's our last, right? Yeah. So I appreciate your ability to take these complex, I mean, you're talking complex neuroscience that you're doing day in, day out. This is not um, simplified stuff, but being able to really weave it together with your own personal practice and Eastern practices, and then translate it for us in this really tangible way that we can now get on our phone and use. And maybe if I were on my phone and using one of your apps... <laughs> It would have said, get back in the water instead of check your email. <laughs> I appreciate that. And it's a really a, a, a wonderful way of using technology to help many. And I think that we really need that right now. Well said. Thank you. Is there anything that you want to leave us with? I would just say, you know, stay curious. Uh, stay curious. And that's really all we need. <laughs> 
Well, we'll link to all your stuff as we're obligated to do. And we will post pictures of you and graphics and do, do some of that uh, footwork. But um, I do encourage people to check out your, I think it's like 10 million viewed uh, TED Talk and your website and all of the free resources that you offer there as well. I think that you'll start off in a journey where you can just keep on unpacking more and more and more that can help us out. So we'll link to all of that as well. Great. Thank you and take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, and our interns, Katie Rothfelder and Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.